Hey, Daryl Spicer. What's going on, Gary Rayburn? Man, are we having a time today. We are. Speaking of time, hey, it's almost time for Lonesome Roads Church on the Road. That's Dennis McKay, the McKay Project, singing that for you. He loves getting in the cab with us. Hey, drivers, we're just going to have fun with you, and we're going to share some uh, great music that we love, and I hope you love it, too. We're going to play one off our Lonesome Road, Volume 1. It's called Taking Me Home, and this song actually went to number one. This was the McKay Project's very first number one hit song on the charts. I'll tell you what, we encourage you drivers to call us and let us know what you think our phone numbers we're going to put them out there i'll give you my cell phone number it's 618-383-2107 our website is lonesomeroad.org so we're going to put this song on for you called taking me home i hope you enjoy it here's taking me home the driver put that thing in gear and let's rock and roll
after day It's a long, hard ride down a lonesome highway Wheels are humming like a sad old song Windshield whoppers singing along Take me home Alone, just me and Jesus down a lonesome road. Music playing on the radio, Merle Haggard singing, Me back home, take me home. Back where I belong, it's taking me home. Back where I belong, it seems like. for you today by Tim Lee. This is an awesome man of God. We've talked to you about him before. Uh, once you get to hearing him, you just want to hear more and more of what the Lord's done in his life. And, and he's a great teacher. He teaches us. He doesn't just preach at us. He teaches us how to be a better servant for the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. I remember the first time I got to meet Tim Lee. It was in a little church in Southern Illinois, Opdyke, Baptist Church, and man, I was intimidated. This guy is such a uh, presence, is what he is. Just the Holy Spirit just oozing off of him. He's just so full of God, and I was so intimidated talking to him, and I remember walking up to him and, and saying, Tim, I've got this little tape ministry. Is there any way 
that we could use some of your messages in our tape ministry. And he handed me a whole stack full of his message. And he said, here you go, son. See what you can do with these. And we've been putting them out all over the country since. And we've had him at uh, Carmi once. And I'll tell you what, I'd like to get him back to Carmi to one of our three-fold chord conferences mm. in the future. What do you think of that, Daryl? I think that's a plan. That's a plan. That's a plan all right. right there. So if you like what you hear today, then give me a call and tell me to bring him to Carmi, and we will do our very best to see if we can't get Tim Lee to come to our conference. Amen. Amen. So here you go, friends. Pastor Tim Lee. Look in your Bibles of the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm speaking tonight on the subject of commitment. I told you last night, the word commitment is almost an unheard of word in the English vocabulary today. Did you understand that over 3,000 Baptist pastors last year quit the ministry? Over 3,000 threw in the time. One out of two marriages in America end up in a divorce. And do you understand that the same ratio that's in the world is in the church? Now doesn't that blow your mind? Let's see what Paul says here about the word commitment in a few verses. Where, uh, ver verse number 11, whereunto I'm appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. I'm at chapter number one. I'm not sure if I announced the chapter or not. Verse number 12, for the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. John Maxwell said this, ordinary people who make simple spiritual commitments unto the Lordship of Jesus Christ can make an extraordinary impact in their world. Let me say that again. Ordinary people who make simple spiritual commitments unto the Lordship of Jesus Christ can make an extraordinary impact in their world. We don't have to look back very far to find real vivid pictures of what this word commitment is all about. We go back for most of us who remember September the 11th, and most of us in this building do vividly remember September the 11th, 2001. Those burning buildings in New York City, as there were hundreds and thousands of people who were coming down those stairs out into the open, there were others who were going in, firemen, and policemen and emergency workers, some with as much as a hundred pounds of equipment strapped on their back. And hardly a word was spoken between the two groups of people, but hardly a word had to be spoken. 
as those that were going up were saying to those who were coming down, if needs be, I will give my life so that you can have yours. And that day over 300 firemen died in those burning buildings. Over 60 police officers and emergency workers. We pay our firemen $38,000, $40,000 a year to put on a uniform and go out and put their life on the line every day. We pay our police officers $40,000 a year to go out every day and put their life on the line. We have men and women serving in our military who have to have food stamps to get by. Well, that's wrong and that's wicked. We pay baseball players $25 million a year to play a game. We have one who played for our Texas Rangers for three years. We paid that dude $25 million a year and we ended up in last place every single year. Now you would think if you're gonna pay a guy $25 million a year, he could win the World Series by himself. We traded that fella to New York and we ended up in second place. I'm thinking we ought to trade some more of them. But when those men and women put on those uniforms, they're making a commitment. They're saying if needs be, I will give my life commitment. Let me give you a word this evening that goes along with the word commitment. At first it's going to sound negative, but I promise you it's not. I'll show you why in a few moments. But if you become the person of deep commitment in your Christian life that God wants you to be, there will be times when you will find yourself alone. The world will not understand. And sometimes your friends may not understand and there may be times when your own family will not understand. But this business of being a dedicated, committed Christian and being alone is nothing new. All through the Bible we find people of commitment and oftentimes they too found themselves alone. Noah built an ark and warned his generation all alone. Elijah prophesied and wept alone. David faced Goliath all alone. Jonah went to Nineveh to preach all alone. Daniel prayed alone. Paul stood before King Nero alone. John was on the Isle of Patmos all alone. And Jesus hung on a cross and suffered and bled and died all alone. And if you become this person of deep commitment that I'm talking to about tonight, there may be times when you too will find yourself alone. Let me give you another word that goes along with the word commitment tonight, and it's the word motivation. Hey friend, if you're gonna become this person of commitment, you're gonna to have to get motivated. And I'm here to tell you tonight that I cannot get motivated for you, and neither can your pastor. We might be able to say words of encouragement and, and words of motivation to help you see the need to get motivated, but if you're gonna get motivated, you have to do it yourself. I joined the United States Marine Corps in 1969. I actually believed as a, as a 19 year old boy when I went into signing that recruiter's office, that dotted line, I thought right then that I was a Marine. But I found out in boot camp, you're a lot of things, but you're not a Marine. <laughs> 
When you get to boot camp, they take everything away from you that has anything to do with civilian life. They take all your civilian clothes. They take everything. They ship them home to mommy. They issue you all military clothes, combat boots, all military equipment. If you're a smoker, they take your cigarettes away from you. You're not allowed to smoke to about the fifth or sixth week of boot camp. Well, it was about the fourth week of boot camp, but I was told to take four of the privates of myself and go to the dental office and have some dental work done. We went, we had the work done, we're on the way back. One of those guys in that little detail spoke up and he asked the rest of us, said, did any of you guys smoke? It just so happened that all five of us were smokers. And to this day, I'm not for sure where he got the cigarettes from. I imagine he stole them from somebody in the dental office. But we didn't really care where he got them from. We just glad he had them. We pulled over in a clump of trees and we lit up the smoking lamp. And we were having one more smoking party. Out of all the drill instructors at Paris Island, our own drill instructor caught us. The meanest drill instructor on that base. You say, Tim, you didn't know all the drill instructors on that base. I didn't have to know them all. I'm telling you, he was the meanest. Skinny Sergeant Lunsford, this guy went berserk. He started jumping up and down. He was flailing his hands in the air, and he was saying words I had never heard before. He kept telling us that they were going to kick us out of the Marine Corps. Now, they weren't going to kick us out, but he sure had us believing that he was. They got us back to the platoon and Gunnery Sergeant Fortner came out. He said, I'll tell you what we're going to do with these five guys. We're going to send them to one day motivation. I had never heard of that. But I was getting ready to get introduced to it. They rolled us out of bed the next morning about 4.30, us five, and then there was a bunch of other privates from other platoons that had messed up. There were about 80 of us all together. They told us we were going on a 20 mile march. Now folks, I'd never been on a 20 mile anything unless it was in an automobile. <laughs> I ran track in high school, but I was a short distance man. They had us in full combat, uh, gear and combat boots. They didn't march us that morning. They ran us. They ran us and we were falling out. We were, every one of us, all eight of us were sicker than dogs. And we'd fall out and they'd pick us up and they'd run us some more. We'd fall out and they'd pick us up. And finally at noon hour, they said, we're going to eat. I thought, well, we're going to get to rest a little bit. And then he said, you have 10 minutes. They gave us a box of sea rations. I never seen sea rations in my life. I used to mama's cooking. They gave us a little contraption called a P-38. How many of you guys know what a P-38 is? Hold you. Well, I had never seen a P-38 in my life. I used to mama's big can opener. I couldn't figure it out. Nobody else could figure that dumb, silly thing out. Finally, I got a can of peanut butter open enough to get two fingers in and get some peanut butter out, handed it to my buddy, and he got some out, and then they told us to go march again. They ran us all afternoon. Well, about three o'clock in the afternoon, we came up on this huge ditch, and they told us we would get to the other side. It looked like it would be about 75 to 80 feet across the other side. And they told us we had to go to the other side, and the problem with that was it was a sewage ditch. That's what we said. 
how they marched us out in the middle of this stuff, we're up to the middle of our waist. Have you ever been in a situation that wasn't funny, but you got to laughing anyhow? There wasn't anything funny about it. We're in the middle of a sewage ditch up the middle of our waist, and all 80 of us out here laughing our full heads off. All of a sudden, bullets started whizzing over the top of our heads. Now, we had heard about these deranged drill instructors. I thought one of them had lost the president's mind was trying to kill us all. But he wasn't shooting at us. They were going 15 to 20 feet over the top of our head, but we didn't know that. But all of a sudden, nobody was laughing anymore. We were ducking down and getting on across there. We got to the other side. They marched us the rest of the afternoon. Then they got us back platoon. They had us clean up. And then they brought us down in front of the platoon, platoon 305. There were 96 privates in platoon 305. They brought all five of us down and Sergeant Lunsford started with me first. He come over and he put his nose right next to my nose. And he looked in my eyeballs. And he said, maggot, he called me a maggot. <laughs> he said, are you motivated? The top of my lungs. I hollered, sir, yes, sir. He said, give me 20 push-ups. I gave him 25. I stood back up my feet out of 45 degree angle, my shoulders square back, looking straight ahead. He came over, he put his nose right next to my nose and he looked in my eyeballs. He said, hog, he called me a hog. He said, are you motivated? Hey, I've never been so motivated in all my life. That was toward the end of the week. And the first part of the next week, I made what was called platoon guy. Platoon guy was the honored position of the platoon, carried the colors of the platoon, and I never relinquished that position to the day I graduated from boot camp. I went into the Marines as a reservist. Nobody pulled any strings for me to be a reservist. I just went in and told them I want to be a reservist. They signed me up. But right in the middle of boot camp, without any coercion from anybody, I went to my drill instructor and I said, I don't want to be a reservist. I want to be a full-time Marine. You want to know why? I was motivated. Out of 96 privates that graduated from platoon, or that started platoon 305, 66 of us graduated. Out of 66, two graduated with a meritorious promotion from private to private first class. I was one of those two. You want to know why? I was motivated. I went to engineering school at Camp Lejeune. Out of all the Marines in that class in engineering school, only one graduated with a meritorious promotion. I was that one from private first class to Lance Corporal. You wanna know why? I was motivated. In Vietnam, I made Marine of the Month in my battalion. You wanna know why? I was motivated. I was getting ready to re-up for six more years in the Marine Corps. I was gonna go to embassy school. I was gonna make a career out of the Marine Corps. You wanna know why? I was motivated. You know why I said all that? To tell some of you that you need to go to one day motivation. You've been sitting in the church for so long. As I said the other night, thinking that this is your service to God. And it's been a long time since you got motivated about doing anything for Jesus. I'm talking about making a commitment tonight. I want you to go to the book of Daniel chapter number three. Now this is one of the most exciting stories of commitment in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter number three. And here it is. There is a king... Nebuchadnezzar, we can call him Neb for short. He doesn't have any respect for God. We don't have to respect him. 
This king's got the big head. He got an ego as big as Donald Trump's. Don't you wish he would do something with his hair? Somebody ought to help him with that. Nebuchadnezzar has decided that everybody in the kingdom needs to bow down to him. And uh, so he has this statue built. This statue is 90 foot tall, 9 foot wide. And what's it made out? Made out of gold. Hey, folks, that's impressive in anybody's mind. I dare say if we read in the Durham paper in the morning that somebody in this area had built a statue 90 foot tall, 9 foot wide before the sun went down tomorrow and it was made out of gold, I dare say every single one of us would drive by to look at it. He said, I wouldn't do such a stupid thing. You went down and saw Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Dumbo the Elephant, and Shamu the Whale, and the rest of that crowd. Sure you would. I'm not saying you're going to worship it. I'm just saying you want to see it. It'd be human nature to want to see such a sight. And so he builds this statue. And then who does he invite to this dedication? The governors, the sheriffs, the treasurers. Every one of the rulers of the province. Now, folks, this is another act of intimidation. The statue itself is intimidating enough, but then the big shots are coming. And the big shots are going by. You know what a big shot is, don't you? Big shot is a little shot away from home. <laughs> hey, if the big shots are going to come, and the big shots are going to bow, who am I not to bow? Young people, that's a lie of the devil, too. I was growing up, I'd tell my folks I want to do something. They said, no, son, you can't do that. I said, but well, mom, everybody, everybody's doing it. They said, no, son, everybody's not doing it. I said, I'd argue with them. I said, everybody's doing it. I said, just tell me one that's not doing it. They said, you're not doing it. <laughs> and so, comes time for the dedication. Everybody bows. Except for three guys. Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego. Let me ask you a question. Don't you imagine while all those other thousands and thousands and thousands of people were bowing and those three didn't, don't you imagine they must have felt somewhat alone? Ladies and gentlemen, the majority is not always right. And sometimes, especially we who are Bible-believing Christians, we have to go against the flow. We have to draw a line in the sand. We have to say that's not right. And we're not doing that. It doesn't matter if 95% of the world's doing it and it's wrong, then God's people ought not to do it. Look at verse 12. Daniel 3 and verse 12, there are certain Jews, not just any old Jews, certain Jews whom thou set over the affairs of the prophets of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regard thee. They serve not thy gods. They'll worship the golden image which thou set up. I told you that, you that if you become this person of commitment, you'll find yourself alone. But number two, look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Here's the second thing you need to understand. You become this person of deep commitment, the world may very well get angry with you. I told you the other night, this world is not God's friend. This world doesn't love God. I've had the privilege to meet presidents both of this nation and other nations as well. But every time I've ever met one of them, they've always been very friendly. They've always been very cordial. Connie and I met President Bush a year and a half or two years ago in Dallas. 
And he got through speaking and he came down right in front of where I was at and he stopped. And everyone in that vicinity heard him. He said, I met you on the steps of a church in Garland, Texas several years ago. Folks, that was 1986. I can't remember who I met last week. My pastor had him come. He wasn't even the governor yet. He, had, he wasn't running for any office. He was the president of the last place Texas Rangers that I told you about. And he came to our church and spoke to some 1,500 teenagers gave his Christian testimony. And he shook my hand and met me for maybe 30 seconds that night. And here two years ago, he remembers it all them years later. And the media in Hollywood wants you to believe he's some kind of a dummy. Not a dummy. He's smart. He's my president. I've been a long time since I've had a president that I'm this proud of. It goes back to the days of Ronald Reagan. I told him I'd rather have Ronald Reagan with all time than have what we have that mess with those eight years. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but every time I've ever met one of them, they've been very friendly. Here, these guys are standing in front of the king and he's angry. But he's been out of shape. And they will get angry with you. They'll get mad at you. I had a guy come up to me in Redding, California in the foyer of a church. This church runs 2,000. This guy comes up to me in the foyer of the church and he's angry. I don't even know what to today what he was angry about. But he shook his fist at my face. Had a red face and he said, I ought to whip you right here. I just smiled at him and I said, well, who are you going to tell if you do? You going to run home and tell mommy you whipped a guy in a wheelchair? He turned around and walked out. <laughs> They'll get angry with you, but that's not all. Look if you would at verse number, Daniel chapter 3 and verse number 14. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said to them, is it true? Not only do they get angry, they will question you. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Now folks, he knew it was true. But in asking a question, he's going to give them an opportunity to compromise in a moment. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The world will question you. And let me say to you tonight, Christian friend, this world doesn't want to know how our Christianity is going to stand up when everything's going great. They don't care about your Christianity as long as they've got... You've got lots of money in the bank and you've got good health and all your kids are behaving and everything's great. What they want to know is about your Christianity when the bottom falls out. When you've lost your job and the doctor tells you that it's a terminal disease. Your child's in trouble. Then they want to know. Is it true? He knew it was true. But not only will they question you. They will then give you an opportunity to compromise. Look at verse 15. Now if you be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet and all these other musical instruments, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you should be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fire furnace. And who is that God that should deliver you out of my hand? Who's he sound like? He sounded like Pharaoh last night. Remember Pharaoh? Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice. Who is this God that should deliver you out of my hands? I heard evangelist Lester Roloff say several years ago that one of the most dangerous times in the life of a Christian is when you've just won a great victory. 
What did he mean by that? Some of you won some victories here this week. But if you think for one moment the devil's going to leave you alone, you're in trouble. He may not come back at you at that very angle, but he will come back again and again and again. Do you know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that the rest of that crowd did not know or realize? They were to have no other God before the true and the living God. There's no way they could bow to this king. Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now let's see how Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego respond. Remember, they've just been threatened with their life. King's mad. How do they respond? Look at verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace. Look at this. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. They're not backing down. They got the same courage that Moses had when he faced Pharaoh. Our God is able to deliver us. Look at the next verse. But if not, you say, Tim, is that a lack of faith? I don't think so. I think it's facing reality. I think they're saying our God can deliver us, but for some reason he may want us to go through this fire furnace. We may even die in this furnace, but even if we do, we're not bound to you, King. A few years ago, we had Daryl Scott come to speak to our youth conference. Daryl Scott, the father of little 16-year-old Rachel Scott, Rachel didn't weigh 100 pounds soaking wet. Columbine High School. And um, they put a gun to her head. Asked her if she was a Christian. Do you realize that the odds are very great that if she had said she was not a Christian, she would be alive today? Yeah. I wonder how many of us, if somebody puts a gun to our head with a bullet in the chamber, would have the courage that little 16-year-old girl had. But you realize and understand that she didn't just take her stand for God that day. She took her stand for God every day of her life. They found her journal. Her parents found her journal after she had been killed. This little girl would seek out students on the first day of school who were new. That nobody else wanted anything to do with it. Nobody else would, would encourage or welcome. And she would be their friend on purpose. This little girl would stop and help people alongside the highway. And young people, I don't recommend you do that. This girl cared about others. And she didn't just talk the Christian life. She lived the Christian life. And a modern day martyr for our Lord. You know what they did to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Young people, you listen to this. They heated a furnace up seven times hotter than it ever been heated before. And, and Pastor, I can think of a lot of horrible ways to die, but I believe perhaps the most horrible way to die would be in a fire. They threw them in this fiery furnace. This fire was so hot that, that some of the king's own guards lost their lives, his own men, because of the heat of the fire. After a while, the, after a while the, the king goes over and he looks down the furnace. The Bible said he was astonished. I imagine he was really astonished about right then. 
He turns around to some of his people. He said, didn't we just throw three in? What's the matter, king? Can't you count? One, two, three, A, B, C. That's real easy. He said, there's not three. He said, there's four. And the four is the image of the Son of God. You say, Tim, how in the world would he know what Jesus looked like? If you ever see Jesus face to face, won't anybody have to tell you who he is? You'll know who he is. And here they are in the deepest, darkest trial of their whole life, and who's with them? None other than the Lord himself. I told you a while ago, if you become this person of deep commitment, there may be times when you find yourself alone. The world won't understand. Your family and your friends may turn their back upon you, but the truth of the matter is, you're never alone. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He's going to be there in the good times. He's going to be there in the bad times. He's going to be there in the mountain. He's going to be there in the valley. He's going to be there in the day. He's going to be there in the night. He'll always be there. You become the person of commitment. Out of all the basketball players in the NBA, and I don't care for the NBA as much now as I used to, a bunch of overgrown babies, Paid millions of dollars, don't have a clue how to behave. And certainly not role models for our young people. But I used to love to watch Larry Bird play basketball. And let's don't get too spiritual about it, all right? <laughs> and uh, I met him, and my son and I was fishing in Mexico with some other pastors and missionaries. And um, and he's not a Christian. I wish he was. I gave him one of my tracks and he sat there. And I heard a lady whisper back there, oh, he's getting some water. <laughs> ah. And um, he read my track, but he, and, and I wish he was saved, but I used to love watching him play basketball. Listen to this story. When he was in the, he was raised in adverse conditions. His dad was a drunk. His mom and dad got divorced at an early age. His mother worked two and three jobs just to put food on the table and pay the rent. When Larry Bird was in the fifth grade, fifth grade, he fell in love with basketball. Without any fatherly figure, without any coach telling him to do so, he started going to his backyard and he started shooting all these free throws. And he got to where he was shooting an average of 500 free throws a day. He did that all through grade school, all through high school, college, most of his pro career. His sophomore year in high school, he made the varsity team. But early in the season, he broke his ankle. He was devastated. But Coach Holland told him, said, look, get the cast off, Larry, you get your ankle rehabilitated, you get back on the team. Well, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. happened. It's the regional championship. And Larry Bird and his team are down by one point with seconds left to go and the other team fouls Larry Bird. It's a one and one. He goes to the free throw line, he takes the ball, dribbles a couple times, takes a deep breath, shoots the first shot, and he makes it. He takes the ball, dribbles a couple times, takes a deep breath, shoots the second shot, he makes it, and they won the game. He's in the locker room and a reporter comes over to him and asks him, said, Larry, what was you thinking about when you were out on that free throw line shooting those two free throws? In his own 14 half year old vocabulary, he said, well, I was just thinking about being in my backyard shooting one of my 500 free throws that I shoot every day. It was the very next year. They were playing 
again in the regional championship, their arch rival, New Bedford, Indiana. Larry Bird and his team are up by six points with less than two minutes left to go, and it looks like the game is won. Larry Bird has a teammate by the name of Beezer, Beezer Carnes. He's got a lot of natural ability, but he's a team clown. He's a cut-up. He's often late for practice. And Coach Holland told him more than one time, Beezer, one of these days, you're going to cost us a game. Beezer has the ball and the other team fouls him. It's a one and one If he can make both of them, they're up by eight points. Surely the game's on ice. He takes the ball and shoots the first shot and he misses. The other team gets the ball and goes down and scores. Beezer has the ball again and the other team immediately fouls him. Why, it's a one and one If he can make both of them, they're back up by six. Surely they still have the game won. He shoots the first shot and he misses. The other team gets the ball and goes down and scores. By this time, Bird and other guys are trying their best to keep the ball away from Beezer. But he ends up with it anyhow. And the other team fouls him. And yes, you guessed it. He missed again. And the other team tied to score and the other team eventually won the game. Beezer's in the locker room. He's got his head in his hands and he's crying like a little baby. Coach Holland walks over to him and says, Beezer, I told you, one of these days, you cost us a game. You see, with Beezer Carn, basketball was nothing more than a convenience. If it doesn't cost me a whole lot, if I don't have to pay too great a price, if there's not too many sacrifices to make, then I'm going to play this game and I'm going to have a little fun. But with Larry Bird, basketball was a commitment. Would to God. In our good Baptist churches tonight, we could find people on a spiritual level of commitment the way Larry Bird was committed to basketball. Just a game. Folks are dying and going to hell. America's in trouble tonight. And we're afraid to make a commitment. I don't know what the needs are of Ebenezer Baptist Church. I haven't asked your pastor. But if I ask your pastor tonight, pastor, do we need more workers? I promise you, without even looking at him, I know what the answer is. If I ask Kyle tonight, Kyle, would you like some more members up there in the choir? I know the answer without even looking at him. We need some more youth workers. We need some more people to help in the water. We need people to work with vacation Bible school. We need people in the mission department. We need people doing things. Yes. Kyle, every night this week, did the, did the choir come early at nighttime and, and practice a little bit? See, that took a commitment. You have to give up a little bit of your time in order to sing in the choir. It's a commitment. We're afraid to make a little commitment in order to do something for Jesus. We're, we're not talking about a game. We're talking about eternity. Years ago, Alabama was playing Auburn their arch rival, Bear Bryant, and, and, and Alabama was ahead with seconds left to go by five points in the football game. But the first string quarterback of Alabama had been injured and Bear Bryant put in his second string quarterback with the instructions to go out and fall on the ball. The game would be over, but this second string quarterback who had not got to play it down all year wanted a little glory for himself. He gets out to the huddle and he calls another play. He calls a pass play. 
And he goes back to throw the ball and it looks like he's got a receiver wide open and they're gonna score another touchdown. But out of nowhere comes Auburn's fastest defender, intercepts the ball and heads down the sideline. Outruns the entire Alabama team. Only one guy between him and the field goal and the second string quarterback caught him on the four yard line. And the game was over and Alabama won. Bear Bryant and Coach Pat Dyer are walking off the field. Pat Dyer, the coach of Alabama of Auburn, says to Bear Bryant, I don't get it. I don't understand it. That, that was my fastest runner on the team. That quarterback has to be one of your slowest. I don't get it. And Bear Bryant said, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Your guy was running for a touchdown. My guy was running for his life. <laughs> Hey folks, we're running for eternity. We're, trying, we're running tonight for something that matters. Let me read this to you and then we will close. This is what Raymond Brown wrote about King David's followers. Listen to this and I quote, their duty at that moment was to obey the king's instructions, to trust his wisdom. It meant that they were going into life of hardship insecurity, privation, suffering, and possibly death. But they would be with the king and that was enough. They would be with the king. Ladies and gentlemen, what little suffering that we might go through here on this earth pales in comparison to what eternity has for us. And besides all of heaven, we're going to get to be with the King. And that should be enough. Let's bow our heads. Simple, simple commitments, ordinary people who make simple spiritual commitments under the Lordship of Jesus Christ can make an extraordinary impact in their world. I want to ask you tonight, I'm speaking to Christians, I'm speaking to believers. How many in this room tonight would say, Tim, I'm saved, I know I'm a Christian, but I also realize tonight after hearing this message I understand that I need to raise my level of commitment to a higher degree. I don't want you to look at another person in this room and say what they should do. I'm asking you, what should you do? I'm talking to young people, I'm talking to moms and dads, talking to grandmas and grandpas, everybody that's saved. How many say tonight, Tim, that the level of commitment in my life to my God is not where it's ought to be, where it ought to be. And I need to raise my level of commitment to a higher degree. Let me see your hands tonight. Would you hold them high? Oh my soul. You can take them down. I didn't ask you to raise your hand just to be raising your hand, friend. I think you understand that. I'm talking about, I'm talking about being serious about this commitment. And we're, we're gonna have this last invitation of this crusade tonight. And I want to tell you something, church, depending on what we do tonight could absolutely 
turn this church upside down for Jesus Christ. You don't have to tell me anything. You just need to come and tell God. There's folks I'm talking to right now. You know who you are that ought to be in the choir. You know exactly who you are. There's some of you that are capable of helping in a Sunday school class. You know who you are. And some of you tonight could be working with the Iwana program, the young people, the upward uh, uh, sports program, and all the rest of that. Maybe making phone calls, maybe, maybe doing volunteer work in another capacity. I'm asking you to come tonight. I believe it would touch God if he looked down on this Wednesday night and saw this altar filled with those who just now raised your hand. And there were many, many, many hands raised. There may be some of you need to make a commitment about baptism tonight. You've been saved, but you haven't been baptized. I want you to come and tell one of our pastoral staff, I want to be baptized. Maybe you need to come and join Ebenezer Baptist Church on this last night of the crusade. The way this church accepts members, that's a commitment. Now, before we sing, the greatest commitment that was ever made was when God gave us his son to die for our sins. The greatest commitment was ever made was when Jesus walked up Calvary's hill and laid down his life for your sins and mine. You're here tonight without Jesus. You're here tonight without Christ. You've never been born again. Would you let this evangelist pray for you tonight? I'm not gonna embarrass you, I wouldn't do that, but do you care enough to let me pray for you? Say, Tim, I'm not for sure if I died right now, I'd go to heaven, I don't wanna go to hell. And I do want you to pray for me. Just slip your hand up so I can see it and then take it back down. God bless you, sir. God bless you, friend. All the others, God bless you, sir. These adult men, anyone else at all, quietly, just put your hand up. Mom, dad, young person, teenager, young adult, anyone else? Hello. Yes, it's really me After all the wrong I've done, Lord I guess you're surprised to see me Here at your altar Like a beggar on bended knees Who's come here to beg you, oh Lord Please, please forgive me I can't make it without you, Jesus Yes, I finally see So let me surrender My life to you And Jesus, Jesus, please forgive me I've learned the truth About Satan's so-called good life Oh, it was just a candle It was just a candle Too short to burn through the night Now I'm here in the darkness And I come to you and plead Oh, light my life, oh, light my life, and Jesus, please forgive me, oh, 
please forgive me I can't make it without you Jesus yes I finally see so let me confess my sins and you Give me eternal life And Jesus, please, please Please, please forgive me Jeremiah 29 Verse number 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And you're thinking, boy, that's a lot of religious stuff. It's not religious, it's relationship. Mm -hmm. And if you give your heart to Jesus Christ, and you diligently seek him in the cab of that truck, you'll find him. So drivers, we're just going to ask you right now today, if you're serious with God, if you're done playing games, and you're serious, and you want to seek him, to say these simple, this simple prayer. Father, I love you. Father, I know you love me. And I know that I can trust you. And Lord, I ask that you forgive me of all my sins. I know you went to the cross for my sins. And I ask now that you cover me in the blood of Jesus and let me live my life for him. Give me the peace that I seek and the desires of my heart that you said you'd give me. So I'm going to seek you and search you right now and ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And drivers, obedience equals blessings. You want God's blessings? Then be obedient to what he's calling you to do. And he's calling each and every one of us to surrender our hearts to him. And that's what you just did if you prayed that prayer. And if you did, we want to hear from you. Give us a call. My phone number is 618-383-2107. And my phone number is 615-663-3199. And we're going to end today's program with my testimony in song. It's called At the Foot of the Tree, and this is Dennis McKay to sing it for you. At the crossroads of life, lost without hope, 18 wheels of lonesome at the end of the road. In my hand was a track The preacher had read His words still echoing In the back of my head I felt so ashamed When I thought of my past Then I called his name This chance would it be my last Then I saw Jesus hanging on that tree I lifted up my heart from down on my knees Today I 
This is Chaplain Gary Rayburn, Lonesome Road Ministries, Church on the Road Radio, and we want to hear from you. Give us a shout. Our phone number is 618-383-2107 or log on to lonesomeroad.org. And if you can't give us a call, then just blow your air horn as you're driving by.
me down, make no time. But I gotta keep it rolling. Those windshield wipers flapping out of tempo, keeping perfect rhythm with the song on the radio. But I gotta keep it rolling. Ooh, I'm driving my Tempo, keeping perfect rhythm with the song on the radio. 